Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in my booze closet in Tokyo. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we both believe that the spirits world would be best served with radical transparency in everything that they do, make, and label. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for more than a decade, and we are extremely excited to share them with you through this podcast. Now, this was supposed to be the final part of a three-part series on Japanese whiskey, but some breaking news means that this is actually part three of what is now probably a four-part series on Japanese whiskey. As you know, if you've listened to the past two episodes, we discussed the origins of Japanese whiskey and how it became a world powerhouse. Today, we're going to be calling an audible and we're going to discuss the new Japanese whiskey labeling standards, which were announced in February of 2021. Please download and subscribe to the Japan Distilled podcast on your preferred podcast app. Or you can, of course, download these episodes directly from our website, japandistilled.com. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Christopher. Uh... You know, I think we're at the point now we can probably say that if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review on iTunes or wherever you can rate and review our podcast. We really appreciate the support. We've gotten a lot of wonderful feedback uh, privately and through social media. And we're really happy that people have been receptive to this. We're enjoying doing it. And I think there will be many, many, many more episodes to come. And I think this is really good timing. When we started down this, what was supposed to be a three-part series about Japanese whiskey, we had no idea that these new whiskey labeling standards were going to be announced. We had heard some rumblings here and there, right. that they were talking about it, there were discussions, but we had no idea when this was going to be announced. And lo and behold, between recording our second episode and recording this episode, they were announced. And that's pretty good timing for us, I think. It was great timing. And it's just this huge can of worms just got opened. It, it literally, I think there's a few better ways to describe it. It has just brought all of the whiskey nerds to the yard and everybody's debating and discussing. It's really good. It's very positive, I think, overall long term, but it has created some uncertainty in the short term. Oh, I agree. And so what happened is the Japanese Spirits and Liqueur Makers Association announced voluntary labeling standards for Japanese whiskeys. So that is if you want to use the word or the words Japanese whiskey on the label or in advertising, you need to comply with these new standards or you're strongly encouraged. And so while they're voluntary, they do carry some weight because in Japan, there's an expression, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. Mm -hmm. So those who don't play by the rules often get called out. And we expect the same to play out here in Japan over the next few years well, when it comes to whiskey. Yeah, this is really interesting for both of us, obviously. I think I'm speaking for you as well, that all of a sudden, it, well, you know, backtrack, 100 years of Japanese whiskey, but there were no real rules about what Japanese whiskey was other than 
whether you had a whiskey distilling license or not. So it was really a tax consideration more than anything else. And now, 100 years later, 100 years into the growth and success of this world-famous category now, now we finally got this list of guidelines, these, these guardrails on the entire industry that have just kind of been tossed into place all of a sudden. While I would say that they're a long time coming, and I think many, many people agree with me on that, it still has proved to be pretty disruptive, or at least it's going to cause some headaches for a lot of people, I, I imagine. I think you're right, because until these standards were set in place, there were no rules about what went into domestic whiskey produced here in Japan or sold here in Japan. So there were all sorts of things where you have these really, really low price whiskeys labeled as whiskeys here in Japan. Some of them are under 40% alcohol, which is a no-no in other parts of the world. Some of them are essentially industrial spirit with caramel color added in and maybe a little bit of barrel-aged whiskey to give it a, a hint of authenticity, very much like uh, light whiskeys in the States. This is what was being made in the US after the war because there were no stocks of, of old whiskey laid down during the war. And so and that light whiskey sort of, in some ways, ruined the U.S. whiskey industry for uh, several decades. Mm -hmm. And you know now it's come back and bourbon's a big deal and rye's a big deal and that, that sort of thing. But a lot of domestic Japanese whiskey, the cheap stuff that you find in convenience stores or grocery stores, is marginally reflective of whiskey. Now, we're not talking about the premium stuff that's been win winning all of the awards that we talked about in the last episode. Right. It was really interesting to me that it was actually the big makers that started pushing for these standards to protect their premium products. Mm -hmm. And yet, it now throws their domestic products into a little bit of disarray. So, Christopher, would you mind running through the standards for us just so everybody's got a sense of context and what the new rules are around Japanese whiskey? The new quality standards, yeah. Okay. All right. This is a pretty big summary. And please understand that if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of these regulations, you do need to read the original Japanese document. But basically what the Japan Spirits and Liquor Makers Association or the JSLMA has determined, has decreed is that as of April 1st of 2021, which is actually just a couple of weeks from now, all whiskey that wants to be branded or all makers that wish to label their products as Japanese whiskey with an E or without need to adhere to the following quote unquote production method quality requirements. And again, that's a translation of the original Japanese documentation. So in terms of raw ingredients, you have to use malted grains. However, you can also use other cereal grains. We're talking rye, we're talking corn, et cetera, et cetera. The water has to be sourced in Japan. Production location and that equals the sacrification, so the extraction of sugars, basically. The fermentation and distillation must all take place in Japan. So this must be a fully Japanese-produced product, produced in Japan. That's important, and you'll understand why that's so important moving forward and why it's such a big deal that some of the large makers have agreed to this. In terms of the distillation, it can't be distilled to above 95% ABV. That's nearly pure ethanol. That is, of course, a nod to grain spirits, which are often distilled in column or continuous stills. The aging of the spirits must also take place in Japan, and it must be in wooden casks, not necessarily oak. 
of no more than 700 liters for a minimum of three years, which is very reminiscent of the Scotch regulations. Packaging, of course, bottling happens in Japan. Uh, The strength of the spirit must be at least 40% ABV or 80 proof. And let's see, what am I missing? Ah, additives. You can, you can, you can, it is okay to add caramel coloring to the product to balance the hue of the whiskey from batch to batch, from year to year, that sort of thing. So that, that I think is all of the new regulations. Maybe you can add something if I missed it. But one last point though, is that these regulations don't fully go into effect for another three years. So we're talking March 31st, 2024 is when any maker who is currently running afoul of one of those new guidelines needs to get back in in the lane and make sure that their labeling and all of their production processes reflect what is now considered to be Japanese whiskey. You, You laid out really clearly what the rules are around making it. And just one point of clarification is whiskey makers in Japan don't have to adhere to every one of those standards in order to continue to produce whiskey in Japan. They need to adhere to those standards in order to put the words Japanese whiskey on the label and in the advertising for a specific brand. But I think it's really remarkable that the Japanese whiskey makers have gone from basically no holds barred for over 100 years to essentially scotch whiskey level standards essentially overnight. There is a lot to unpack in these rules. But perhaps now I should run through some of the history that leads us to this point so our listeners understand why these rules have been put in place. Sure. This goes all the way back to when... Commodore Perry came in with his black ships and the Japanese samurai first got a taste for whiskey. He left and Japanese still wanted their whiskey. And so what did they start doing? They started making ersatz spirits, ersatz whiskeys. They started adding colorings and using whatever distillate they could get their hands on and selling it as whiskey. So there's a long history of cheating in Japanese whiskey, <laughs> longer than, than, than malt whiskey. Right. Right. We're, we're talking 1850s, you know, probably not. Obviously, it wasn't like the day after Perry left, you know, they started doing this. But within a, you know, a decade or two, some whiskeys started to appear on the market, probably by the 1870s, 1880s. Certainly, there were Japanese whiskeys for sale, mm-hmm. but they weren't whiskey. Now, in fact, the other thing that has a long history and longer than malt whiskey in Japan is importing whiskey, packaging it in Japan and selling it as Japanese whiskey. And this may have actually been Aegashima's White Oak Distillery's game when they first released their, their first whiskey back in 1919. It may have been wholly imported scotch. We don't really know. Mm. There's also a long history of that. Right. And then jumping forward, so you had the, the completely fake whiskeys, which is actually how Taketsudu got his start. Remember, he was chosen and sent to Scotland to learn how to make real whiskey because he was so good at making fake spirits, fake drinks that like wouldn't kill people and people actually wanted to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and for, to his credit, he went, he learned how to make it the right way and he came back and he essentially established the Japanese malt whiskey industry. You jump forward to the 80s and 90s, there's a lengthy court battle between Japan and the WTO based on how Japan taxed spirits. And this really gets to the crux of everything that these labeling standards are touching on now. Essentially, Japan was taxing domestically produced spirits at a much, much lower rate than imported spirits. 
And they were even taxing Japanese-produced whiskey at a higher rate than Japanese indigenous spirits like shochu and awamori. Right. So it took essentially, I think it was from around 1987 when the members of the WTO brought complaint against Japan. It took until about, I think, 1996 before a treaty was agreed upon. it. I think it was, yeah. It took about a decade to iron this out. And I read a lot of the documentation around that, which is freely available on the WTO website. Japan was trying really, really hard to protect Shochu and Aomori, to their credit. Mm -hmm. So the end result was that the Japanese tax laws did change. And the WTO acknowledged that they weren't really in the business of telling countries how to run their tax regimes, but that Japan's taxation rules were unfair. And after this long negotiation and the subtle claims, taxation was harmonized. This resulted in three immediate and lasting changes to the Japanese spirits market. First of all, imported whiskey became much, much cheaper. And then Japanese whiskey prices aligned more closely with these imported whiskeys. And the third thing is that Japanese shochu makers and awamori makers were no longer permitted to sell their barrel-aged shochu or awamori if it expressed itself as a whiskey. That's not really how the rule was written. It's more about the color or the hue, like how long it stays in a barrel. But essentially, the barrel is what's adding a lot of that whiskey character. So even if that wasn't the rule, that was the intent and that was the effect. Now, the consequences of this is the domestic whiskey market plummets. This is actually one of the big reasons why whiskey became unpopular in Japan. The timing of this really couldn't have been worse. This was during the bubble bursting era, the lost decade. All of this is happening. Mm -hmm. So people have less money. They're worried. They have economic anxiety. So they're looking for cheaper alternatives. This is actually when shochu has its really big boom because people want to drink something more affordable. And suddenly imported scotch, which is considered at the time the best whiskey in the world, is on par price-wise with a lot of Japanese whiskeys. So why would you drink domestically when you can drink imports? Yeah. So that, that really hurt the Japanese whiskey industry in the short term. The other thing that happened, though, is that shochu and awamori makers are suddenly stuck with warehouses full of barrel-aged aging spirits that they can't sell in Japan. They're no longer allowed. Now, that didn't really matter to them at first because they were making so much money selling non-barrel-aged shochu and awamori. Mm -hmm. But as that market began to dry up a little bit, then they started to look for alternative markets. And it took some time, but they realized that they could actually, due to American whiskey laws, export shochu and awamori aged in casks to America and sell it as Japanese whiskey. Because in America, it has to be aged in oak and made with grain. Rice is a grain. Mm -hmm. Barley is a grain. Mm -hmm. So this wouldn't apply to sweet potato shochu, but it applied to rice and barley shochu, which are the styles most often barrel aged. Right. So brands such as Fukano and Oishi turned out to be quite popular in the US with American whiskey drinkers and whiskey drinkers interested in Japanese whiskeys. And in fact, in 2020, so just last year at the World Spirits Challenge, the Fukano 10-year earned the highest score in the Japanese whiskey category with 96 out of 100 points. And that's it actually tied with Suntory's Hibiki Harmony. That is absolutely nuts. So that's a rice whiskey by American labeling standards. It would not fit the new rules, which we're going to talk a little bit about how all of that changes. But yeah, it's, a, it's pretty, pretty remarkable that something that expresses as a whiskey made in Japan, made 100% in Japan using Japanese techniques, can now not be sold in Japan, but can be sold in the States as a Japanese whiskey. 
and and in other parts of the world I've, as well, I believe. I mean, this in really, some places it does it doesn't uh, Europe doesn't allow it doesn't allow it actually the EU and UK that's right so okay most of the rest of the world uh, would not see Fucano as a at least in the Western world would not see Fucano as a whiskey okay but in in the USA it is so it seems that these new rules are kind of intended. I'm sure to a large extent they're intended to prevent the shochu and awamori, awamori makers from doing exactly what you just described, which is, in essence, kind of bundling in on the whiskey maker's turf and using something that has a lot of flavor already, a lot of quality, a ton of character, which is shochu and or awamori, single distilled pot distilled beverages. And if you let those guys in, I'm sure there's some mild trepidation on the part of the whiskey makers that those extra dimensions of flavor and aroma could prove problematic. Now, whiskey flavor and aroma is from the barrel. Absolutely, 100%. And the first barrel more than the second barrel and the second barrel more than the third. But it does certainly feel like the whiskey makers this um japan spirits and and liqueur makers association which is of course led by powerhouse companies these are gigantic companies they're kind of trying to edge the shochu and awamori makers out am i wrong i think you're right there some of it could be anti-competitive where they're really trying to prevent other makers from making japanese whiskey but i think there is a risk and the risk is that not all shochu makers who use barrels for aging actually know what they're doing with barrel aging. They might be experts at fermentation Mm -hmm. using koji, and they may be experts at distilling once to get a really beautiful expression. But that doesn't mean that they know how to treat it in wood. Very true. There's some risk to the reputation of Japanese whiskeys if you have releases of these koji whiskeys, what I think both you and I would like to call them, that these expressions may not lend themselves to uh, enhancing or reinforcing the reputation of Japanese whiskeys overseas. And as you and I know, a single distilled barrel-aged shochu expresses much, much differently than a multiply distilled malt whiskey or grain whiskey. Absolutely. Simply because there's so much flavor from the single distillation and that koji fermentation. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about extra dimensions. As I said before, we're talking about umami. We're talking about just all of the, you know, we're talking terroir here. We're talking about the people making these drinks. This is generation after generation handing down these skills and techniques. We're talking about these microclimates. It's the microbiome of the distillery itself. It's the, it's the place. It's the people harvesting the ingredients. It's all of these things. And I think that they bring heaps and heaps of value to the conversation it's really interesting to just see all of this kind of shunted to the side is what I, what I feel like it is. And, and even more importantly, I, I feel people kind of looking down their nose at Koji to a certain extent. And I don't think that's what this country wants because everything good in Japan is made with Koji. I mean, we're talking sake, soy sauce, shochu, aomori, mirin, miso, you name it. This is all born by koji. So let's be very careful how we tread here in terms of making koji spirits that the bad guy. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a key point. And, you know, koji fermentation has 
for alcohol production has over 1200 year history in Japan. 1200 years. Mm -hmm. Malted barley has probably been in Japan since the mid 1800s for beer production. And the first malt whiskey was not released in Japan until the 1920s. Right. So very, very short history of malting versus koji fermentation. And both of these do the same things for alcohol production. That is, they are breaking the starches into sugars to give the yeast access to the sugars to make the alcohol. So the Western tradition is to use malting for grains to essentially get the grains to germinate and then kill them to release the sugars. And koji actually uses, koji is a mold that uses its powers to break those starches down in a different way. Koji is actually more efficient than malt for extracting sugars from grains. In fact, as we mentioned in the first episode, there was the Japanese chemist, Jokichi Takamine, who was making koji whiskey in Peoria, Illinois in the 1890s. And it was only an accident of history that that ended up not becoming a style of American whiskey in the late 19th, early 20th century. And so it's interesting to me that there's a focus on malting as a Japanese expression. Yeah. In some ways, that seems a little bit short-sighted to me. And I think maybe we should not go too far down that path because I think we could do an entire episode on that. Oh, absolutely. And we probably will. Mm -hmm. But that seems like a distinction that's intended expressly to keep the shochu makers out of the whiskey business because it it is required to use malted grains and shochu cannot be made with malted grains. Right. Yeah. Even though these days there are many shochu makers who also have whiskey licenses and have set up separate facilities to start making malt whiskey, you know, that whatever, you know, but your point from earlier about koji whiskey probably being very close to being a real American subcategory. That's fascinating to me. I think it, they were just a month or two away from that. Obviously, if you dig more into that story, you'll know what we're talking about. But anyways, yeah, you're right. Let's not go too far down that rabbit hole. So obviously, this this whole malt koji dichotomy dilemma, whatever you want to call it, isn't the only really new issue that's raised with these standards. There are other things that the association is hoping to prevent. Am I right? Absolutely. Much more worrisome to me, and I think to the makers themselves, is what's happened during the recent whiskey boom. You know, now Japanese whiskey is like the hottest spirit in the in the US market, especially in the EU as well. It's extremely popular. And snake oil salesmen have invariably appeared. This is what happens anytime you've got a booming trend product, right? Mm-hmm. So these unsavory characters have come out of the woodwork here in Japan. They buy up second or third grade scotch in Scotland, Mm -hmm. bring it over, bottle it in Japan, and they sell it with these deceptive Japanese labels to unsuspecting customers. And I think the worst offender in this, I'll call them out, is the Kurayoshi brand. (laughs) Yeah. These, These guys, they were selling in 2018. When I was visiting Japan, maybe 2017, I went into a Bic camera and there were bottles of Kurayoshi age statement whiskeys selling for over $1,000 a bottle. Really? In a Bic camera. Yes. Big camera, ladies and gentlemen, is a very large chain electronics store that does also have a liquor department in many places. Some of them also have pharmacies inside of them, but I digress. That's right. 
yeah, this is a huge, huge issue. There's the lack of transparency. That's right. This transparency issue, I actually think is quite broad. Kuroyoshi is by far the worst offender. But another example is Kikori. Now, I tried to contact the company when I was doing research for my book, and I got no reply uh, from their PR department or anything. Mm. But to their credit, at least they're telling us that it's made with rice. So it's a rice whiskey made in Kumamoto. Now, we know there is no malt rice whiskey made in Japan, Mm -hmm. and that Kumamoto is the heart of rice shochu production. So this is, as far as we know, unless it's imported scotch, which I don't think it is, a barrel-aged rice shochu in the vein of Fukano or Oishi. Mm-hmm. But why not be more transparent? Maybe they have an NDA with their uh, supplier. Who knows why they're not revealing any more information about how or who makes it. Um, but there are dozens of Japanese whiskeys of unknown origin. It seems every time I visit a liquor store when I return to the U.S., there's a new Japanese whiskey on the shelf with zero information about its provenance. And most, if not all of these, correct me if I'm wrong, are basically foreign whiskeys that are imported in bulk and bottled in Japan, right? And we're not talking about bottled in bond. This is not some protected warehouse space that is heavily restricted and everything has to be done clinically. This is really behind a curtain. And there's big, I mean, there are really unspoken incentives for the brands to be doing this. I mean, they can charge a premium price just by basically throwing a Japanese style calligraphic uh, art on the label and coming up with some Japanese sounding name. And so hopefully these new guidelines, these new guardrails, the new rules stop this, right? Yes, I believe they do. Now, the reason I say that is because in addition to the production methods rules, which you laid out, whiskeys not made following those rules can no longer use Japanese sounding names, Japanese imagery, or anything that would make customers think what's in the bottle is a Japanese whiskey. Hmm. So essentially, it's trying to stop these unscrupulous brands from being able to sell their products as Japanese whiskeys to unsuspecting customers. Huh. Yeah, this is actually, it's really impressive when you go back and you think about, you know, Nika and Suntory are both in this association, they're really kind of taking one for the team. They've they've measured the negative consequences of everything, and they've decided that it's better for them to come clean on what is blended into their brands. I mean, the big boys here, they, they've got, they own distilleries in Scotland. They produce their own spirit, their own scotch whiskey that they then bring back to Japan. And I mean, Suntory owns Jim Beam. So with all of this going on, they can't call some of their brands Japanese whiskey anymore. And that's remarkable when you think about it. Yeah, for sure. That's to their credit. I mean, Nika was right on top of this. As soon as the rules were announced, Nika changed their website to reflect which of their whiskeys contain foreign blends and which are 100% made in Japan. So the very popular Nika from the barrel actually has scotch blended in with their Japanese distillates. So they put a disclaimer at, at the bottom of the webpage for it that says, this does not meet the, meet the labeling standards for Japanese whiskey. Yeah. It's still a beautiful drink. It There's is. no reason not to drink and enjoy Nika from the barrel. Um, but it can't be labeled as a Japanese whiskey. It can still be sold as a whiskey, though. Right, right. It satisfies all the other criteria. Yeah. So do you think that this is all going to work? That's a great question. 
it only applies to members of this organization. So if there's a shochu maker out there who is not a member of this organization and doesn't want to be a member of this organization, they can do whatever they want. They can continue to export their barrel-aged shochu and sell it as whiskey in some countries overseas. However, this these rules do prohibit members of the organization from selling to any overseas spirits importers who are attempting to skirt these rules. So these sort of fly-by-night operations, these these whiskeys of unknown origin, that's probably going to go away in a big way. Right. It should stop most, if not all, of these practices over time. We have to remember these rules are only fully enforced in 2024. So any products that are in the market before the end of March of this year have a three-year grace period to become compliant. Right, right. So they've they've got time to to sort out their provenance and all these other issues. Yeah. And another thing, again, just to reiterate, is the fact that these guidelines are not law. It's not it's not been legislated. These are basically self-policing rules for members of this association. And it seems like they're coming out pretty hot and they are trying to enforce that. You saw, as you said, Nika has already changed some of the wording on, on their website. And there's been a little bit of a reckoning and a aha moment and a gotcha, gotcha stuff on the internet in terms of people figuring out what is quote unquote Japanese whiskey and what is not. But I agree with what you said earlier. I think if, if it tastes good and you're happy with the price, then hey, drink it. And let's not forget, Japan does the whole blending thing pretty damn well. So um, don't look down your nose at what they've been working to perfect for decades and decades. That's completely right. You know, I really think these new standards are a step in the right direction. I don't think they're perfect by any means. And I think we'll get into some of the reasons why in the next episode of this now four-part series. But it'll be really interesting to see how all of this plays out. In the meantime, if you see a bottle of Japanese-looking whiskey (laughs) on a shelf, Uh do your research. Ask questions. And if you can't figure out who makes it or where it comes from or how it's made, it may be best to keep looking. Yeah, and you know, the... Whiskey nerds of the world are already scouring whiskey labels looking for a lot of key points that they feel influences the quality of a product or how, I don't know, traditional the product is. And those are things like, you know, the additives like coloring, no coloring added to the whiskey is a big thing for a lot of people. And, you know, filtration commentary is another big thing. Maybe one more thing you should have on your radar is looking for anything on the back label that says, fermented, distilled, bottled in Japan, whatever, or aged in Japan. Just, I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Of course, it'll say product of Japan on the front label, but check more closely and see if people start to write that all steps of the process occurred in Japan. And that might be something that starts to take a bit more hold moving forward. But I guess it is kind of buyer beware, question mark, in the short term, (laughs) you know? But having said that, there's a ton of good stuff out there. And I think this isn't by any means a reason to ignore the Japanese whiskey category, what it was before, what it will be in 2024. Stephen, can you share with us what are some of your favorites just so that people know what to be looking for? The whiskeys that I've been drawn to most recently in Japan are really sort of not every day, but like whenever I want to highball 
I, I go to Akashi White Oak, mm. which I know is available overseas. It's from Agashima Distillery. I believe if I'm, it's a blended whiskey, so I'm pretty sure there's some imported whiskeys in it, maybe a little bit of their own malt. Um, but it's so nice as a highball, really refreshing, easy drinking. Going a little bit more premium, though, uh, Komagatake from Mars, their latest expressions are just so nice. They're single malts, mm-hmm. really, really underrated. I think they're 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 playing with the big boys now. Mm. And then uh, Ichiro's malt, which is the Chichibu distillery in Shizuoka, uh, everything that they do is so creative and so interesting. If you can find it, you're going to pay a premium for it, but it's definitely worth worth trying. Now, for Suntory and Nika, I've been a huge fan of Hakushu for a long time, yeah. which is Suntory's uh, distillery. And fortunately, when I heard that they were suspending sales of their 12-year age statement, I stocked up. Yeah. So I have a little smart. bit in reserve. It's coming back. It's probably still going to be hard to find for a while. But how about you, Chris? Or do you have some uh, favorite Japanese whiskeys? Yeah, I am a fan of the Chichibu distillery. So I love Ichiro's. And I've been sipping on that since the card series many, many years ago. That used to be very widely available in Tokyo and was not very highly priced back in the day. I also, at your recommendation, have got my hands on some of the Akashi White Oak uh, with the, the black lettering one for for highballs. And nice, nice. Yeah, and then the, I, I'm always paying attention to what Hombo is doing at Tsunuki. And then fortunately, I've got my hands on some of the new make stuff, some of the newborn whiskeys coming out of places like you know, what Komasa is doing at Kamosuke and then Kuroki is doing at their new place. So yeah, kind of casting a wide net, enjoying what I can find, really looking forward to what these rules mean moving forward. Japanese whiskey has always been good. It'll be (laughs) pretty fun to watch, to see if it gets better. Thanks to some of this, some of these new guidelines that have been put into place. Sure. So yeah. Well, um, cheers to that, man. Yeah, Kanpai. Kanpai for sure. I What I'd like to close with, I think, is we'd love to hear from our listeners about what they think about these new regulations, these new labeling standards. What do you see as the good, the bad, the ugly? The, what's, what's promising? What's a risk? What is it doing to your perception? How are you now shopping for Japanese whiskey? You know, and especially with collectors, like you might have some things now that aren't going to be worth as much. You know, it'll be interesting to hear how people feel about that. So you know, drop us a line on Twitter, or Instagram. And also that's going to be the theme of our next episode. So getting a little feedback from our audience would be fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Please chime in, let us know what you think, and we will be right there with you. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Christopher. This was fun. For those who are searching, you can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. Pellegrini is P-E-L-L-E-G-R-I-N-I. Stephen, where can people find you? As always, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at shochu underscore danji. And I'm also using the at Japan distilled Instagram and Twitter accounts. Please reach out and ask any questions about Japanese whiskey or any other Japanese spirits you have thoughts about. And if you have ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear that too. As for additional reading, I'd also like to recommend the outstanding Whiskey Rising by Stefan Van Eyken. The book is so well-researched that it was translated back into Japanese and is now the definitive guide to these drinks in Japan. And Stefan is an amazing human if you ever have a chance to meet him. Absolutely. Nothing but amazing humans in the whiskey world. And may I be so bold as to say that also in the shochu and Aomori world? (laughs) (laughs) No bad people. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We love you. 
comment. Let us know what you're thinking. We want to start some conversations about all of this. Until next time, next time we're in your feed. From Japan, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Time's up.